0: And so here we are again at the Sermon on the Mount. Arguably the most important sermon ever recorded in human history. I think it's probably been read more than any other portion of scripture or things written by men. People compare it to like being the Christian... Uh, Declaration of Independence, like what Jesus taught. And really, with the Sermon on the Mount, when you look at the teachings of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew and in other places like Luke chapter 6, part- particularly, you see the consistency of the themes that Jesus taught on. And remember, we're told in the Gospel of John that no one has seen the Father at any time, but the only begotten of the Father, the Son, Jesus Christ, has revealed God's heart to us, God the Father's heart. So when we're reading the Sermon on the Mount for the next few weeks, we're really we're understanding what was God's heart for the law when He gave the law in the Old Testament. We're understanding what is God's heart for humanity when He, as He sent His Son to die on the cross for our sins, and we're understanding what is God's heart for His church. Uh, Danny prayed about the body tonight and the body of Christ, who we are and what we are in each of our generations and our timelines for the Lord. And so this is a this is our Declaration of Independence. This is like this is what really matters and. Praise the Lord when we come to Christ and we receive him as Lord and Savior. He fills us with his spirit and what we're going to be reading for the next few weeks in all red letters. He equips us to live that because if we're trying to do these things on our own, there are high ideals like there are high ideals for human behavior and human interaction and social functioning and relationships with people. But the beauty for the disciple of Jesus Christ is that he gives us the power to be this person And so with that in mind, we pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 5, where it says this in the narrative, and seeing the multitudes, he, that is Jesus, went up on a mountain, and when he was seated with his disciples, they came to him, and then he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, so this sets us up, right, because the previous chapter, he ministered to a great multitude there in that Galilean region, the Sea of Galilee region, and then... There's multitudes coming from all these places, but now he sees that multitude. and He goes up to a mountain, and now he's going to sit down, and really we're going we're to get to disciples, right? Because we know that there's multitudes of people that will follow after anything, but when Jesus teaches the Sermon on the Mount, now it's like, who's really, who's going who's to be this person? In fact, when we were in Virginia in 1992, an epiphany from the Lord that first year of pastoring being the lead pastor at the age of 30. And the Lord, it was so clear where the Lord put on my heart Are you trying to produce churchgoers or disciples of Jesus Christ? Because in the South and the Bible, Belt, there's lots of churchgoers. And the Lord really spoke so emphatically to me Are you here to build a big following of churchgoers or do you want to make disciples of Jesus Christ? And I was like, Well, of course, disciples, because that's eternal fruit. And if you're targeting church growers, that may not have any fruit at all for eternity, and not even maybe that much in time either. It was a defining moment for me in ministry, just three years into the pastoral calling. And so tonight we we go forward with that idea that Jesus is separating the disciples from the multitude. The multitude is welcome to be there, like at a harvest crusade, there's a multitude, but who's going to really hear it and respond to it? That's where you see the discipleship of someone who's going to follow the Lord truly and sincerely. So he opened his mouth and began to teach them on that mountaintop, and he said this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This, of course, is that famous passage of Scripture known As the Beatitudes, and there's a blessing. So Jesus says, "Blessed, how blessed! Oh, how blessed is the person who is this, 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 and this." And what you find is there's an interesting pattern to these Beatitudes, but they don't really follow an exact order because the first few of them start out and they're focused on character attributes. So the Beatitudes are character attributes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. So humility before the lord Uh, to just be broken before god and knowing your need for the lord and crying out to the lord blessed are those who mourn so recognizing we're we're not perfect we're sinful people we need a savior that mourning like man i can't do this god help me really realizing you need to be saved and you can't save yourself that you mourn over your sin and by the way there's something very beautiful about someone who's fallen in sin and is mourning over it not the sin but really broken by it. I've often said your failure can be the defining moment that sets you up for fruit and success the rest of your life if you're broken by that sin. If sin leaves us broken and so broken that we mourn over it that we don't go that direction again, then it does work together for good, as it says in Romans 8 for the believers. And it's a good thing because it's, it's broken us. And now we realize how desperately we need the Lord so blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted blessed are the meek so again that's like that humility and hey it's it's not about me i don't have to force myself on you um meekness is basically power under control it has the idea like hey i might have the right to do this but i'm not going to force it it just has this idea like you're sensitive to other people and it's it's a character attribute like it doesn't it's a character attribute that is related to humility And then those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, so that's a desire, that's a spiritual desire. So if someone's been born of the Spirit, we tend to, well, you just know God's working when you wake up and want to read the Bible. Some people were raised in Christian homes, and so it was a very gradual process. Talks about Timothy that way, that Paul said to Timothy, you received this faith from your grandmother, and you're raised in the Scriptures, kind of like my kids. It was all there, kind of as long as they can remember. But some people, and some of you are like this, You weren't raised that way at all you weren't raised with a a biblical worldview and then when you heard the gospel and you responded the light was on in somebody's home and and you were different and you had different desires because it's like what peter says that as a newborn babe in, in the faith desire the pure milk of the word and we know with newborns they always they want the milk and they let you know that And Peter the Apostle, led by the Holy Spirit, made that comparison for when someone's been born again or born from above, that they're going to have those spiritual desires. They are going to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And it's pretty awesome. Think back in your own life, maybe, when that happened in your life. Isn't that like, for me, I I can never forget it because it was 1987. I remember I went to church on a Sunday morning at the Calvary Chapel there in Encinitas, North Coast Calvary. The time I was in Encinitas at Vulcan Square. And uh, I went to church on a Sunday morning I was like, man, this is great. I know the surf was good, but, you know, so this is better. This is better than surfing right now. And so I went to church, and then, like, later on in the afternoon, I'm like, hey, they had a service tonight at 6. I'm, I'm going to go back to church tonight. And I'm like, whoa, this is crazy. Because g- growing up, you know, uh, having to go to church, uh, like a uh, uh, rules and regulation with my Catholic mom— it was like yeah, you just do it. It's like paying taxes. I just do it, in, you know, one hour, and you know, you know, it's good. The Catholic mass was good for me as a kid. One hour, you know, it's done. It's like a class at school that you know, whatever. But then I wanted to go to church. Can you relate to that? Like you really, like you really, you wanted. Well, I wanted to listen to K Wave instead of K Rock. It was 1987. There weren't that far apart on the dial, right? 107.9, 106.7. Right. I mean. it's but I, no one said, hey, you better not listen to K-Rock, you're a bad Christian. I'm like, I, I don't want to listen to those guys. I want to listen to Pastor Chuck, right? Man, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's a beautiful thing when that happens in your life, and you choose those things, and you go after those things. And isn't it a beautiful thing to see it happen in other people's lives? Isn't it great to see people who are once in bondage to certain sins, like renounce those sins and really go forward in the good things of the Lord? Hit these first four, poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those are all internal, if you will. Like, you can look in the mirror and say, hey, I want to be, you know, I'm poor in spirit. I'm hungry and thirst for righteousness. I'm going to walk in meekness. Those are personal choice characters, self-determined character things, okay, that really deal with you. In other words, you have control over those things, just who you are in your person. But if you look at the next one, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy, okay this this is a big one because there's a blessing on being merciful and there's a promise to in showing mercy you'll receive mercy so we have a couple things here first of all God is merciful and we know that mercy is defined as not getting what you deserve mercy is when you should have got something and you did it like you should have been suspended you should have been fired or whatever but it didn't happen it's like a get out of jail card if you will That's what mercy is. Like, you were clearly guilty. This was the punitive damages for that, the punishment you should have. And yet, somehow, you, you, you got off the hook. Back when surfing was my life, even before I was a pro surfer, when I was about the age of 14 or 15, I had a friend, his name was Ken. He's an older guy, and he took me to surf contests and all this stuff. He had the greatest surf magazine collection imaginable from the 60s all the old surfer and surfing magazines from the 60's. And I would look at those things it, it, when I was at his house. And um, I, you know, I, I had a problem stealing stuff when I was young, but it all came back on me, so don't worry too much about it. Remember the story, I stole the bike one day and then someone stole my surfboard the next day. I was like, hmm, 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 right? Like it all, it all God brought the justice that way. But I snuck into his house and I stole all the surf magazines. Yeah, I know, I know. (laughs) Yeah, so I I, I stole them all, like the Grinch. I didn't need one of them. I took them all, and I had them. and, And, you know, of course he would have known I took them. And he was super merciful because Ken, Ken said to me, he's like, hey, you know, someone stole my magazines and everything about like, you know, I'm like 13 or 14. Like, I don't know anything about it. You know, like liar, liar, pants on fire, right? But he goes, hey, well, listen, I don't care who took them, I, I just want to get him back. So if you have a friend out there or whatever, and I got him back, that was merciful that he didn't totally humiliate me and make it worse than it was. He was gracious with that but he was merciful. We see David in the Old Testament as a man of mercy, right? And he showed mercy, and he received mercy. That was his great attribute. So unlike those first four in these Beatitudes, the mercy is a little different because mercy is something you show horizontally. Like that's something you show other people. So in showing mercy, it means really, if we could summarize, how could you be merciful? Well, first of all, it means you're in the position by which you can bring about punitive or punishing damages on somebody who's wronged you. Or you're just going to get revenge on them. They did this, they did that. Well, the solution to stopping that cycle of just going back and forth, which people do, as you know, who aren't merciful, is involves forgiveness. So the real key to being merciful is just forgiving people and seeing things maybe the way God sees them, or surely the way God sees them, and that's how it's going to work. If someone's really wronged you, and you can get back at them, and you don't, that's being merciful. And you just let the Lord work through that, and you can't go wrong. You, you cannot go wrong when you let the Lord be the one who, who initiates chastening, judgments, and consequences for people that way. So mercy, I mean, even if you have to do, deal with something legally, To be able to separate yourself emotionally from that is the best way to handle it like let the courts decide the situation but to to not just be so filled because if you're not merciful the wrath and the bitterness will destroy you so it's to your own benefit it's our own benefit to be merciful and forgive others so that's a relationship thing right so these are the kingdom attitudes so the kingdom attitudes these are these are identity character identities of a disciple of christ this is what separates the the multitude, the churchgoers, from people that are disciples of Christ. They're not in and out for some self-serving purpose, but they're poor in spirit. They mourn over their sins. They walk in meekness, and they hunger and thirst for righteousness. So therefore, because of that, they're merciful, and they show mercy. Then the next one is pure in heart. So now we're back to looking in the mirror again. That's self-determined. Being pure in heart is really a completely 100 self-determined situation we each alone decide if we're pure in heart or not it has nothing necessarily to do with how someone else affected you or things that happened to you pure in heart is a is a character attribute that just says hey we want the washing of water by the word of god we we fear the lord we choose to fear the lord and we want to keep things right and go right. So we had four that are like basically looking in the mirror. The fifth one is walking outside your front door. Number six here is looking in the mirror again. But then number seven is huge. Blessed are the peacemakers. So now this is dealing with other people. Now we know that it says there in Romans 5 therefore having been justified by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we know it says in Romans that as much as up to you, live peaceably with all men. Jesus is going to tell us in the next chapter um, that, uh, or you know, in the next passage, actually, that reconcile where you can with other people before it gets worse and gets down the road and gets does much more damage. The idea of a peacemaker is that you bring people together. They'll be called the sons of God. Isn't that an interesting term for it? What does the Son of God do? I just share with you Romans five one. He's the, He's the peacemaker between sinful men and holy Father. He's the peacemaker. So when we're peacemakers and we bring people together and we don't look for things that divide, we look for things that bring us together. We 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 call the sons of God. We take on the character of God. God's takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that they would turn. And and the ministry of Jesus Christ is a ministry of reconciliation. So it should be our natural disposition in being a spirit-filled woman or a spirit-filled man is to look for ways to bring things together and bring people together in a good way. And by the way, I've been thinking about this before we move on from this. If you can say of your life, if the people closest to you can say of your life that you were a merciful woman and a woman that was a peacemaker as a, just a total resume of your life, that you were a merciful man and you were a peacemaker what 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 could go what could look better on your deathbed than that huh because mercy is the, the god's merciful it's one of his absolute defining characteristics and you say you love jesus if you show mercy and that's that's your resume on the day of the lord that's really good and in a world where people always divide and fight and look for contention over everything, I mean, there's 31 chapters of Proverbs, and there's a ton of them, like any fool can just prattle, prattle about and run their mouth and create more tension and throw more, you know, fuel on the fire. It takes a godly man, a godly woman to keep their words. And in a multitude of words, sin's not lacking. And you just, bless are the peacemakers. You bring people together. You don't keep stirring it up. You bring people together. Another one of my youthful stories, where this shows how much I had to be saved. In eighth grade, I got suspended twice, actually. But the first time I got suspended, two guys were fighting. Now we all remember in junior high when there's a fight, it's like fight, 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 right? So there's a fight, and the fight was done really quick. So I took the one kid and threw him back into the kid, and they kept fighting. <laughs> I thought it was entertaining. It's lunchtime in eighth grade at Valley Junior High, 1975. To me, it was funny. I was like, I had my long blonde hair, like, I listen, to Doobie Brothers, like, this is really funny. Keep Fighting, you know? And I got suspended. And my mom's like, Joe Buran, you're the only one that could get suspended for fighting when you didn't even fight. You know? <laughs> you need to go to confession or something, right? That's the way it was. A lot of people think it's entertaining to stir up strife. A lot of people feel they need to chirp something on a social media post or add their thoughts to this blog or stir things up or, you know, there's finally a piece at the dinner table. No, let's just go around the block one more time. Let's just, let's really get on a topic that, that'll get mom and dad mad. Or let's push this button. Don't be that person. That's not kingdom attributes. We, you know, I like to think now, you're like, hey, let's, let's work this out. Like we, we, don't, we don't need people that stir up conflict and accentuate conflict. Jesus diffuses conflict. Blessed are the peacemakers. So these are the two, in this list of Beatitudes, being merciful and being a peacemaker, these are the two that deal with horizontal uh, relationships with other human beings. The other ones essentially deal with you and what you choose to do with the Lord or not. And then the last two deal with being persecuted for righteousness' sake or persecuted for Jesus' namesake. But in both those cases, that's, again, horizontal. But it's not what you're doing. It's what people are doing to you, you see. So mercy is what we show. And being a peacemaker is what we do. And being persecuted, that's what the world does to people who show mercy and are peacemakers and identify with Jesus. But we don't have a choice in that. People persecuting us for righteousness' sake and for Jesus' name's sake, we do not have a choice in that, how people choose to respond to us as we live for Christ. But we have a choice to forgive and be merciful, and we have a choice to look for things that bring people together. We want to we bring people together. However we can, as best we can. And obviously we don't, we know there's the balance there of like, there's a point where compromise is bad compromise. But I think you know when you're there, so until you're there, look for good compromise, because usually we don't want to compromise our rights. The problem usually isn't compromising truth. It's compromising our rights and our way. So as we learn to just work with people, that's what diplomacy is, right? And what do we call for Jesus, by the way? Ambassadors. Ambassadors do diplomacy. You, 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 work, you, you try and bring things together. So these Beatitudes, because we don't want people to go to church, but how many people live like this when they walk out the doors of the church? In their home, at work, in their community. This is the key. This is who we want to be. Jesus opened his mouth and taught his disciples. He's separating the multitudes from true disciples. And many are called, but few are chosen. And again, as I said at the beginning of this message, the beauty of being a follower of Christ is we're born of the Spirit, and the Spirit equips us for all things pertaining to this life and godliness. So the main the main first point in this passage, comes from this segment here, is the kingdom attitude and, and kingdom attributes. And this is who we want to be, and we're just reminded of it tonight as Jesus began this great message, like You know, this is who we are, and this is who you are when you're identified with me. And that's the way it works. So the second part, the second point of the passage, verse by verse tonight, comes in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Salt of the earth. So we have kingdom attributes, and then we have so we are the kingdom attributes and blessed are those with the kingdom attributes. But here you are the salt of the earth. Okay, so salt of the earth. And we're told with an exhortation right off the bat, being the salt of the earth, if it loses flavor, how can you fix it? You can't. It, and it's good for nothing. But to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. So he's using terminology and understand, particularly in an ancient world, how salt was used at a higher level than our world. So in that ancient world, the way salt worked, salt, first of all, was valuable. There was value in salt. It was a valuable thing to have because, uh, second of all, it's a preservative, right? You could preserve food, meat, and these things, and it had had a value that way. So salt was important. In a pre-electricity world, salt was very important. So it had value, and it had a preserving element to it. And, like our salt, like our table salt, it's flavor, it adds flavor. So when we think about, okay, Jesus, Jesus looks, at, looks at us. If you're a follower of Jesus, he looks at us. Here we are, we're on the mountain. Wow, Jesus is teaching us right now. We're like, Okay, we're going to be his disciples. And he says, you are the salt of the earth. You're like, that's salt of the earth. Okay, light of the world is a little easier to get. But salt of the earth, like that's salt of the earth. Okay, salt of the earth. Well, again, we just have to consider. If he says we're salt, we, know, we need to know what salt was. And in that culture, it was value. It was preservation. And it was flavor. So let's think of our lives, being a disciple of Jesus Christ, of being value, preservation, and flavor. So value, wherever God has us, where we live, our living situation, if you're married, if you're single, you have roommates, your neighborhood, if you don't, the apartment complex, whatever it might be, wherever we live, as a follower of Christ, our life should bring value to that situation our lives should bring value to the home because jesus said to be the greatest in the kingdom is to be servant of all so in a marriage if i'm bringing value to my marriage i'm gonna have a servant's heart in my marriage i'm gonna be sensitive to my wife see a worthless husband i would think is a husband that's just a lazy lump on a sofa right Like a worthless husband without value is a husband who just, it's all about him. He's the center of the universe. The gravitational pull is him. And everything orbits around him, including his wife and his kids and his grandkids and the people he works with in the neighborhood. It's all about him. We all know that guy. He could be your neighbor. Just don't let it be the man you see in the mirror. But it's all about him. That man has really no value for the kingdom. He hasn't figured it out yet. And you know a lot of those men go to church too. And they're just playing church in their mind. A man of God, a man in a marriage who has value, values his wife after the Lord above all else and will lay down his life because he loves his wife and will lay down his life for his kids. He doesn't worship his kids, but he's there to die for his kids and to raise his kids unto the Lord so they can be fruitful when he's gone from this planet. That's a man of value. That man of value, when he goes to work, he brings value to work because he shows up on time. And he works hard. He does a great job. He finishes the job. His his involvement in the community is value. Whatever he's a part of, it's value. His kids on the uh, AYSO soccer, he's just one of the dads, but he he brings value when they're all gathered together on Saturday playing in the field right here next to Shoreline. He's He's the dad that just... he's pleasant to be around. He makes the the volunteer coach's job easier because he's not a pain-in-the-neck dad of a five-year-old. And you're like, who could be the the pain-in-the-neck dad of a five-year-old? Plenty of parents. Believe me, plenty. It brings value. Value in everything he does. The woman is the same way. The wife that brings value. A wise woman builds up her house, but a foolish woman tears it down. It says in Proverbs, yeah, you, just, you bring value. What you bring to your husband. You know, when you read in Proverbs about what a wife, good wife does for her husband, and she, she brings him no shame. and oh, But then it talks about the wife that you just, oh, honey, why are you on the roof? Just because I like the roof better than the dining room table right now. Right? You know that proverb. It's better to be on the roof than with a contentious woman at the dinner table. A foolish woman tears down her house. It's, it's touch and go, isn't it? But wouldn't you rather be a woman of value than not? And wouldn't you rather be a husband of value or a single, a roommate of value? I mean, you have three singles living in a room together at a college dorm or as adults in their 40s or 50s, adult siblings. If they all go to church and say they love the Lord, I would hope one of them at least brings value to every day when the dishes need to be done or the trash needs to be taken out or this or that, like that's value. That's being the servant of all. That's the value. This is what separates us from the world. That type of value. And then preservation. To restrain evil. Salt is a preservative. It's preserving health and and restraining putrid things, with meat particularly. So your presence in a home should be value and a preserving element that keeps the home from just falling apart with things that will destroy it. You're not turning it down. You're your godly restraint against things that are ungodly. When you go to work, when, when people start compromising and lowering their standards, you walk in them like, no, quit talking right now. I don't talk about that in front of him. Because you're preserving the element. When they're talking about how to rip people off, oh, you can get persecuted for it. That's why he said in the Beatitudes, Blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. But you preserve integrity when you go to work and, and you're, you're not part of the problem, and you're part of the solution, and you're transparent, and as we say, doing a, having a skill set that's sufficient to do the job and the character to do it at the right price is priceless. It, it's just who we, who we are. My Catholic contractor, he's a wonderful man, been doing some work. I'm telling you, if you ever need a contractor, I got the contractor. You know what I like about someone that makes a bunch of money, does a great job, shows up on time, everyone has a cement and work ethic, skill set and work ethic? I'll tell you what I really like is when they're making cement in the front yard and the day is done, that I walk out there and my hose is in a circle, properly put away. And that hose is hard to do. That hose goes a little bit in a different direction my front yard hose, perfectly in a circle. That's value, preservation. You make things better. That's what salt is. You make things better. We, man, at work, gosh, if there's five people in a meeting and you're the one, male or female, and they're talking inappropriately about your superiors or your subordinates, well, they wouldn't even want to talk that way around you because you're the preserving element against that. That's what this means to be salt. That's who you want to be. You just got to know that you're a woman of integrity, and you're not gonna, you're not gonna, you're not gonna be that way. I just think of those guys who were gonna do, who do the, did the bid on the mold damage, on on my neighbor's yard, down the street. Roger he's in his eighties. Those guys showed up, twenty five thousand dollars for mold, and if you know anything about mold. It's not as scary as everyone thinks it is, and rarely would ever even be over a couple thousand. And I called Devin, who's a plumber. His guy showed up, 2,500. was going to take out a whole monthly line of credit to be ripped off by these people. When you're a woman of integrity, a man of integrity, you bid the job right, 2,500, we can do this. You don't look at this old man and say, how can I take this guy for everything? How can I separate him from the hundreds of thousands of dollars of equity in his house that someone else is going to inherit, it, and I'm going to separate him from like thirty thousand by just because he's scared of mold? Oh, mold! See, that's we're the opposite of that in Christ. You're looking out for Roger. You're not seeing how you can take advantage of him. You're not part of the corruption in society that rips people off. You're part of the preservation of society that considers them and does to others as you would have them do to you. That's salt. That's preservation. And you bring taste too. People walk in with the joy of the Lord bring taste. Make things, we make things better. We really do. Sometimes we need wisdom to be that Thanksgiving dinner table, right? <laughs> you know, when there, people are drinking, it's family like, okay, here we go, man. It's all here here it comes it's you know, the, the trucks are getting loose on the skateboard, but you but you still you still man, you 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 still bring flavor to it. That's Jesus, you know, he's at the wedding, he's at, he's at the wedding feast and he brings flavor to it. He turns water to wine. He's eating with tax collectors and sinners and the, the self righteous are condemning him. And he's like, hey, you know, it's all good. It's just, they're just like, Matthew, see, I told you, he's our kind of guy. Matthew, the tax collector, look, you see, see, he's like, he's not like those Pharisees out there. He's meeting us where we're at. He's like, that's, man, we bring value and flavor and preservation, and restraint, restraint against evil, value, and flavor. And you really want people to be excited when they see you walk in the room, at work, at home. Preservation, flavor, value. That's what it means to be salt. If you're like, hmm, that's good, good stuff. And the last one is the light of the world. So we see here in verse 14, you are the light of the world. The city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. We're the light of the world. Now, in Orange County, that might not mean as much because we have permanent light. We lived across from Metro Point for 10 years, and you can almost go crazy when you live with the city lights and you're in an area where it never dims and there's always freeway noise. Where were the 73 and the 405 emerging? There was always freeway noise and there was always the lights of Metro Point. But you know, when you're driving in West Texas at night on the 10, and you're somewhere between San Antonio and Fort Stockton, or even darker yet, Fort Stockton and El Paso, if you've never done it, apart from being fearful of deers that just randomly come out of nowhere, it is capital D dark. It's as dark as can be. If you've ever taken the tent through West Texas, you go 20, 30 miles, it's just dark. It's just the, the trucks, right? The trucks on the, on the 10 there. And all of a sudden, you might come over a rolling hill in West Texas at 10 at night, and there it is. Ozona, Texas. Just, there's the lights. Ozona, Texas. It's like three or three, 5,000 people. There's a Hampton Inn's, there's a Chevron, no Starbucks. But, you know, so there it is. And it's 20 miles away. It looks like it's three miles down the road. Because it's the only light in the darkness. It, it looks so close, but it's so far away. Because the light's there, and it's just, it's just shining out. Or like if maybe you're, you're going to 15 in Nevada, and you've passed Baker, and it's late at night, you're headed toward the state line. When you come over that pass, and there you see the state line, right? You see those lights? Go, oh, that's the big Chevron. I think there is a Starbucks, too. But you, there it is. It stands out. When there's darkness, the light shines brightest. So the world's very dark morally, and the world is very dark spiritually. And that's the legacy of the church, is that God puts this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, and he puts us in dark places so we shine like the state line in Nevada, like Ozona, Texas, late at night on interstate 10 he wants us to shine but a lot of times we want to be there with all the other light we want to be like just another light at metro point just another neon light at three in the morning while they're doing freeway work with all their lights but the lord will stir us up and get us out there because there's some very very dark places and you will find like why would god send me to this dark place because you're the light that's why and the people who sat in great darkness have now seen a great light, which is what we read about the prophecy concerning Jesus and his ministry in the region of Galilee, except in Naphtali. The people who sat in great darkness have now seen a great light. We are the light, Lord. Why am I the only person at this job, and all these people are just this way, and it's so hard, and I'm the only one? Because you're the light. You're the light. You're the light. That's showing the way in how you carry yourself, how you work, how you interact, how you handle your failures in front of them, how you handle your successes in front of them, how you treat them, how you initiate things, how you respond to things. You're the light. Now, in the Gospel of John, it says that, you know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then it goes, and Jesus, of course, is the Word. And it goes on to say that he's the light. The light came into the world, and the light is the life of men. Let me say that again. It says there in the first nine verses of John chapter 1 that Jesus is the light that is the life of men. So his light shows men and women throughout history the life that's meant to be lived, abundant life, eternal life, lose your life, find your life, that life. It's him. He's the light of the world. He is the light of the world. And people say, well, you know, it's like he's the sun and we're the moon and we reflect the light. There's songs about stuff like that. But the light's in us because we're born of the spirit. But if Jesus is the light and the life of men and we're the light of the world, doesn't it stand to reason that we're the light and life of men? Because we're reflecting him. We may not be the moon and he may not be the sun, but because the light is in us, but we are a reflection of him in that way. Sometimes God puts you in a very dark place to let your light shine brightly. And again, if you're in West Texas, now you're west of Fort Stockton, and you're going toward El Paso, it is really, really dark. If you're even just a moderate light, a little teeny street light, you'll stand out from 20 miles away. Some people's lights shine brighter than others, but still let your light so shine before men. Because we are the light of the world. He's the light of the world, and we're the light of the world. That's what he says. We're the salt of the earth, but we're the light of the world. And in so shining for him, how we carry ourselves, how we handle ourselves, that it says that, uh, like light in a house, a city on a hill, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Every time we choose to do the right thing, proactively or responsively, it glorifies the father it's to bring glory to the lord and that's a that's a wonderful thing we're pilgrims we're passing through we're ambassadors of christ we're his witnesses and we're salt and we're light and we have kingdom characteristics and people need these things that's why we should never worry like how dark it may seem to be going in a culture or society or any place god would ever put us the playbook never changes for the church of jesus christ we're to be a witness for jesus we're to let our light so shine before men that they glorify our father in heaven because of our good works and that's not going to change no matter who's in power at what level worldwide no matter what global events are going on it's just still going to come to you being one of eight billion people on this planet being a disciple of jesus And waking up and living kingdom characteristics, being the salt of the earth, and letting your light shine before men to show the way, to lead the way, and to glorify the Father. Don't you just love the Sermon on the Mount? It's like it's like easy reading, it's like the Gettysburg Address. It's not that long, but it's that powerful. It's just so solid. Like I could be teaching this to my granddaughter Zippy. I get to be teaching this to Clementine, who's five, like the right choices. Salt, Clementine, look at the salt. Like I could literally teach, you, you could teach this to your five-year-old daughter or granddaughter. This is who you are when you go to public school. This is who you are at girls' soccer. This is who you are when you're surfing at Doheny. This is who you are when you're doing this craft with these other kids over here. This is, this is who you are. It's so obtainable. It's so practical. It's so simple. But the key is going to always be to truly be a disciple. I remember Pastor Chuck saying quite often, actually, when he was alive, that it's not the the gospel and obedience to the Lord is not a complicated thing. It's just that we don't want to do it. (laughs) And I have to tell you, my problem is never not understand what I'm supposed to do. It's my willingness to do it, right? Can you relate? So Lord, help us and strengthen us. This is is our constitution. This is the Sermon on the Mount. And this is for us, disciples of Jesus Christ. Yes and amen.